Manasseh wasn't mentioned in the text last week, we're going to bring his name up. We might bring his name up every time because Manasseh brought the Lord's wrath upon Judah. What was the last straw? What was the king that put the last straw that brought the Lord's wrath? It was Manasseh. So we're not going to forget about that. And we're going to see that repeated throughout the book of 2 Kings. Well, his son Ammon became king. So Manasseh's son Ammon became king. And if you remember, even though Manasseh messed up royally, he was repentant in the end and good. So here's this balance, evil, good. Which one is Ammon going to follow? Well, according to the sin nature, I think many times we go down the road of sin and he becomes an evil, evil king. You remember that? He only reigned two years and we're glad of that. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He worshiped these false gods that his father had begun to destroy. He forsook the Lord, even though he saw his father Manasseh be punished and then his father be delivered by the Lord and his father repent. Didn't matter. He forsook the Lord. Ammon was killed by his own servants. And then the people straightened out justice by getting a hold of the the, uh, conspirators and they were killed. And Ammon's eight-year-old son, Josiah, was appointed king. And if you remember last week, we did talk a little bit about that he did right before the Lord. And we see it from the very beginning in his early life. And he reigned and started a revival. We read last time that in his 12th year, he would have been 20 years old by that time. He began to seek the Lord. And I think that is key. So if we're talking about being an influence on anyone, that's the number one thing, that they would seek the Lord, that they would come to the Lord as Savior for salvation. Well, he started a purge, and he purged Judah of its high places. He tore down the altars of the Baals and the Asherim. When we were looking in the book of Jeremiah, since it started with Josiah, we were already impressed and and we had a good look. And perhaps maybe we were even a little confused in Jeremiah why Josiah, the very first king, did so well. Why was Judah getting punished? Because of his past history and because of Manasseh. Josiah chopped down the alders, he ground down the molten images, he scattered the powder on the graves of those who sacrificed them. He burned the bones of the pagan priests on their altars. Josiah went through Judah destroying the idols in Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, and even as far as Naphtali. So what else do we need to know? Well, there's a lot to be said more about Josiah. And I think the number one influence is that they're going to discover the law of God. Well, I'd like us now to, if you would, I'd like us to turn to Jeremiah, verses 1 through 3, that's all. So, 
you know, when I went to Israel, we were doing the book of Jeremiah, and I was so excited. And as we were going to many of these places, as the scriptures were being read about what we're learning, there were so many from the book of Jeremiah. It was great. And I said something to uh, the, the uh, person who was in charge of it. I said, well, are we going to get to see the burial place of Jeremiah? And the response was, well, we really don't know where it is. And the place that they say it is, is probably a tourist trap. And they just say it's the place of the burial of Jeremiah. And by the way, if you remember, the other thing about Jeremiah is they had the Ark of the Covenant while Jeremiah was prophet. By the time the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple and Jerusalem, they did not carry away the Ark of the Covenant. Somewhere along the line, the Ark of the Covenant was hidden. Some say it was hidden by Jeremiah underneath the tunnels there in Jerusalem. But what do we read here in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3? Let's take a look at that. It says, the words of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1, 1, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. So he was now uh, reigning for 13 years. And that's when... Jeremiah received the call. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, and the last king, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. And of course, I want to read verses 4 and 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. So there really is a little bit of excitement here for me. We've studied the book of Jeremiah. I've been over there in Israel. Now we're doing the kings, and it's really coming together. Well, first of all, I just want to say this. So he was the son of a priest, and his name was Hilkiah. Now, we're going to see Hilkiah, I would say perhaps another and a different Hilkiah, in this section. And one of the reasons is, is that his father was a priest there in Anathoth. He wasn't in Jerusalem. The Hilkiah in this section, is in Jerusalem. Now, maybe maybe his father moved, and maybe his father became the high priest, but we don't see those clues. So more than likely, this Hilkiah, uh, who's from the land of Benjamin, lived in Anathoth, which is about three miles north of Jerusalem. It, it, some do not believe that this was his father. In fact, I have a somewhere in here. I'm not sure if it's before or after. There we go, Anathoth. So there is Anathoth, and if I'd have had more time, I'd have maybe highlighted a few things. You say, well, how can it be three miles north of 
Jerusalem when I don't see Jerusalem. Well, you see that little, that little town, that little city called Jabus? That's Jerusalem. It has its name changed to Jerusalem. So this is where, this is where Jeremiah was from, and this is where his parents, his father, was from. Now I want to talk for a moment to you about Jeremiah's call. Uh, he was called at a young age. Now we don't know how young exactly. Some have suspected that maybe he was in his early 20s, perhaps even his late teens, 18, 19, but we don't know. But we see in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 6, when he's called, he says, then I said, alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. So we don't know exactly how old he was, but he lived a long life and he lived as the prophet during the five kings. It was the 13th year that he began his ministry, uh, the 13th year of Josiah that he began his ministry. And of all of the revelations that God is going to give Jeremiah, this is the first one that he has been chosen as a prophet. Now, first of all, before we even talk about him being chosen, notice verse 4. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, I highlight this every time we come across it. Because this is the real call of a real prophet. It's not someone who is a pseudo-prophet, who'd like to be a prophet, who says today that they went to a prophet school and they were told that they were a prophet. The word of the Lord must come to you. And I'm not talking about today when you hear someone say, hey, I received the word from the Lord. Oh, no, you didn't. Oh, no, you didn't. We have the word of the Lord in the scriptures. And if you want a audible word from the Lord, read the scriptures out loud. This, particularly, this call as the word of the Lord is what the prophet who was chosen by God, he's going to be God's chosen spokesman. Therefore, God is watching over what he says when he preaches and what he says when he writes. If that's not true, take your Bible, throw it away, let's go home. That, but that is exactly what it means. And, and what I'm so thrilled with is we come across it so many times in Scripture that I don't understand why there are people today who don't see this and they think, hey, I could be a prophet. Oh, no, you can't. And notice he was chosen. In fact, Dr. Galuza spoke of this verse uh, this week. Um, and he talked about this. He said, he quoted from Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now, I know the subject of election can be difficult. I know it can even become volatile. But I am called to preach the word. And before Jeremiah could have made any choice at all, God made a choice before for him. Now, usually what's said is, well, that's because God looked down through the corridors of time and saw what Jeremiah was going to do. You know what? You remember what Pastor John Ward used to say? That is a slap in the face to a sovereign God who chooses 
of his own accord. Anyway, here is an example of God's choosing and electing and calling one of his prophets into the ministry. We also saw that with the Apostle Paul, where Paul, even though spent many years as a, an unbeliever, a blasphemer, a murderer, said that God had set him apart, just like Jeremiah. So as we take a look at these things here, we see that Jeremiah is very important. Now, I have a little quote here that talks a little bit about Jeremiah's ministry. Not only is he over the five kings, and they would be Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Not only is he going to have a ministry over them, but what is the main theme of Jeremiah? Judgment. You guys are going to a new place, not better and not the promised land. But there also is another theme that he talks to them about bringing them back. He talks to them about the new covenant. But let me just read this quote. The main theme of Jeremiah is judgment upon Judah, chapters 1 through 29, with restoration in the future messianic kingdom. That's the millennial kingdom. That's the kingdom that we read about in the book of Revelations when it says in a thousand years. And it says that in chapter 20, and it repeats it over and over. Some people don't believe in the millennium. Some people believe we're going through the millennium now. Well, no, we're not. And we, there is a literal millennial, a millennium. Christ will reign on the throne just as all of the covenants promised. And we're going to see that those promises were given to Israel, even Judah that sinned against the Lord and was taken out of the promised land. Now, it says, whereas Isaiah devoted many chapters to a future glory for Israel. Jeremiah gave, gave far less space to this subject. Since God's judgment was imminent, he concentrated on current problems as he sought to turn the nation back from the point of no return. And you can imagine, as Jeremiah is given this, it breaks his heart. And thus he's called the weeping prophet. Now one time I heard somebody say, oh, Jeremiah, he was the crybaby. I don't appreciate that at all. Because if you study the book of Jeremiah, he was bold. And oftentimes his life was in danger. And he did not compromise. He told those kings, the four kings, he told them exactly what they were doing wrong what they were going to have as a consequence and what to do if it was right. And they did not. And so his heart was broken and he wept. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1. You don't have to turn there. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Thinking of the sins and then the consequences. You will say this word to them, let my eyes flow down with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people has been crushed with a mighty blow, with a sorely infected wound. 
Now, I also feel that we've, we've learned in the study of God that God is a personal divine being. And being a being, he has intellect, will, and emotion. And even though God knows exactly what's going to happen, God is going to bring about what's going to happen, I believe this broke God's heart. What his people, his called chosen people were going to do, and he had to remove them from Jerusalem, the holy city. But he also promised to bring them back. So that's Jeremiah, and that's how this all starts at this time. Now, let's pick it up in verse 3 of chapter 22. So this is 2 Kings chapter 22. By the way, there's an awful lot in 2 Kings. Not a whole lot of it is different. Few details here and there, but I want to make it through this. So we're going to focus on 2 Kings. So 2 Kings chapter 22, beginning in verse 3. It says, now in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king set Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshalam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, we'll get to verse 4 in just a moment. So we begin this with, it's the 18th year, which makes him about 26 years old. So already he sought the Lord. Already, I believe there's some godly influences. Shaphan is one of them. I believe Hilkiah, the high priest, is another. But he's responding. And we're going to see that I think he's responding in a good way, even a spiritual way. And then we're going to find the word of the Lord. And this is going to be the ultimate influence in his life. Now, it says that he sent Shaphan to uh, go to Hilkiah, the priest. That's what's going to happen. So who was Shaphan? Well, I, I believe he was a godly influence. He was an official. If we're not really sure what he was, he was an official in the court. Or he was a secretary. Or somebody said maybe he was even the secretary of state. These are what some of the commentary says. It doesn't say exactly what he was. But this is what we have. Why do we say that he was godly, a godly influence? Well, we'll see. We'll see his, his actions. But one writes this. He was undoubtedly one of the staunchest supporters of Josiah in his work of reform. He was the father of Ahikam, who befriended and protected the prophet Jeremiah. He was sent to the house of the Lord to speak with Hilkiah. In fact, that's not the only son that was influenced. We're going to see that in the book of Jeremiah, several of his sons have this godly influence upon them. So even though we couldn't figure out a pattern from the evil, good, evil, evil, good, 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 evil, even though we couldn't figure out a pattern, there is a pattern of influence with godly influence. So that's what gives us hope. Well, look at verse 4. It says, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. 
as I said before, it is possible that this is not Jeremiah's father. This is in Jerusalem. Jeremiah's father that we were told about was when was in Anathoth. Now, he was asked to count the money that was collected by the doorkeepers. Um, so what was happening was there was a collection of the people, maybe free will offering, if you will, maybe taxes, if you want to call it that, but it was a free will offering, I believe, with the people of Israel. And what was it for? It was for the rebuilding and the renovation of the house of the Lord. We've seen this with other kings. When they're right with the Lord, they get the first things done first. The worship of the people, the house of the Lord. Okay, some of them even did the walls, but those walls were the walls leading right to the temple. So even though this is a renovation, it, it, there seems to be a priority. What was David's heart? He wanted to see a temple built for the Lord, even though he couldn't do it. Solomon did, his son. So this, this is a part of a person who's after God's own heart to see this worship of the Lord as first priority. Now, these, these collections, I believe they told him what the collection was from, and he's going to have Hilkiah, the priest, count the money as in the collection. I think that means that he is a trustworthy priest. But one of the interesting things that 2 Chronicles says that this one doesn't say is that even some of the money was collected from the northern kingdom, Israel. Not the southern kingdom. Of course, it was collected from them. But even the northern kingdom. And so in 2 Chronicles, you don't have to turn there, 34.9, it says, They came to Hilkiah the high priest and delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the doorkeepers, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and from all the remnant of Israel. That would be the northern kingdom. And from all Judah and Benjamin, which was part of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So, you know, Josiah had an influence on the northern kingdom, and this was all for the renovation. But watch why he's doing this. He is doing this to pay the workers who do the renovation. And I think this is a good thing. I think this is the way that it ought to be. If you, if you remember, there was other kings or another king that had done it this way. So look at verse 5 then. Look at verse 5. Actually, I read down to verse 7. So this is his instruction to Shaphan to go to Hilkiah, say, count the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. And he says, verse 5, let them deliver it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of the Lord to repair the damages of the house to the carpenters, to the builders, and the masons, and for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Only no accounting shall be made with them for the money delivered into their hands, for they deal faithfully. 
it seems as if honesty has been restored in the kingdom. And at first, it's the idea that they're going to give the money to the foreman. And the foremen are going to distribute the money to those who are the workers, depending on, you know, perhaps with their skill level and what they do. This money is also going to be used for the expenses uh, for materials, timber, as well as the hewn stone. And this idea of no accounting. Now, today, we, we have accounting, even if it's our own accounting within ourselves um, to to keep things above and beyond, uh, you know. And, and we do see pastors quite often as men who are in it for the money. And they're very lucrative. It's a very lucrative thing. And that's horrible. So when it comes to the collection of money, I don't count it. And I don't want to count it. I, I, I let our treasurer do that. And because, because I don't want that to be an influence, I, that's is not what it's about. Now, we need the collection to run everything, and the Lord has been very, very gracious in these latter years. I mean, I re when I first came to the church, I remember when we were bringing our own paper towels into church to supply it, and to look where we are now, the Lord has just done a great job, but I, I'm not in it for the money. In fact, uh, I was talking with Dr. Galuza uh, this, this past week, and I don't know how that topic really came up. Well, I do know. Uh, it was uh, some of the speakers, not from ICR, but other speakers who were in it for the money. They would tell you, you have got to give me this much money, and it was exorbitant. And not only that, but it was not only you've got to give me this much money, that's not counting the transportation for me and my staff. That's not counting the rental car that we may need in your community. And by the time it was all done, it was just an exorbitant price. And I, I, I always have a problem with it. Now, I, I think there is some cases where it is legitimate. Perhaps some speakers are so busy, so much in demand that at some point they have to start, you know, you know having some sort of limits or, or bonds. But it still bothers me that, that those men won't come to a small church. Dr. Galuza comes to a small church. That was really what attracted me. Well, one of the things that attracted me about him and his ministry. Well, anyway, these people, these foremans, there was honesty in the kingdom. Things were going good. And it says, for they deal faithfully. So there's going to be no no reason to have an accounting. So this is good. And, we, and I think this is to Josiah's credit. Even though he's only 26, he's doing it right. And then something happens. They find the law. Look, if you would, to verse 8. This, this is really one of the most important and famous parts of Josiah's life and events. This is it. They found the law. Look at verse 8. Then Hilkiah, the high priest, because he was going in to get the collection of the money, got the collection of the money, said to Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. 
And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, who read it. Now, there's a couple of things I want to say here, but first of all, I have to say, how sad was the spiritual status in Judah, the place where the temple was at, not up there in the northern kingdom. They wouldn't come down and worship the Lord in the place that he designated his presence would be. But Judah, where Jerusalem was, somehow or other, they had lost contact with the law. And so it was a spiritual deficiency in all of these kings. But God blessed Josiah and allowed it to be found during his reign. One writes this, In the process of renovating the temple, a copy of the book of the law, and it said either the book of Deuteronomy or more likely the entire Pentateuch, which Deuteronomy is a part of because that's the first five books of the Bible. This was found. Evidently, Manasseh or Ammon had destroyed other copies, apparently, so that the discovery of this one constituted an important find. Hilkiah, the high priest, shared his discovery with Shaphan, who also read it. So what a moment. And, and, it, and you know, it is interesting to say, well, what happened to all the other copies? Why did they have it? Well, it could have been Manasseh who destroyed all of that in his reign of evil terror. Or it could have been his evil, evil son, Ammon, who destroyed it. But anyway, there was the word of God was preserved. Well, as we're going to see now, Shaphan is going to go to Josiah and he's going to report. He's going to report, we did what you wanted us to do with the money to the workers and we found the law. Now, one thing I will say about Hilkiah is he understood what it was. It was the book of the law. And he gave it to Shaphan to read, and I don't think that means, no, I'm not going to read it. You read your Bible. I don't think he meant that at all. I think he was familiar with it. Maybe he read it first, but he gave it to Shaphan to read it as well. And I think what we're looking at here is Shaphan, who had a, an inroad to Josiah, would have an inroad to bring the word of God. That is the key of influence. So when we try to influence those around us or those underneath us, um, there are a lot of things we can say and encourage people. But I really think that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. It's living and powerful. That's it. You know, it's one thing for someone to listen to me, a fellow sinner of my opinion of the Bible and Christianity. It's another thing for them to hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Now, they will do with it what they will. But I dare say, even that is an accomplishment of God's word going out and not returning void. It's not going to return void because it's either going to have success in salvation or success in proof of judgment. Well, this is how important it is. And in verse 9, he goes to him, Shaphan goes to Josiah, 
and reports. Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. This is a good thing, as we talked about. Verse 10, moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. That's how you influence. That's how you influence a king. That's how you influence those who are in authority. I believe that's how you influence anyone. It is through the word of God. And this is why it's so important for us to read the word, study the word, memorize the word, saturate ourselves with the word, because the more we do that, the more we're giving the Holy Spirit his instrument, his best book on on the shelf. He wrote the scriptures. It gives him his instrument to work in our hearts. I, I... I believe here that what we see when he read it to the king, it wasn't like, okay, king, I, I want to read something to you. Uh, you. You get the idea that Josiah was probably all over it in the beginning. Really? Really? You know, if Manasseh or Ammon had destroyed all of that, and he was only eight years old when he came to be the king, it might have all been gone, and he might not have heard that, even though he sought the Lord and was godly. And so he may have said, Yes, you have got to read that to me. And look what happens when he does. In verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. That is in repentance. And maybe not so much in his sins, but in the sins of Judah, which most prophets, when they confess sin, they put themselves right in with it because they're part of the people. And this is what we have here, this idea of repentance. And it's going to have a profound effect. So we're going to see more of this profound effect. And it says, verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book, he tore his clothes and then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah, or Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and the people in all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning it. Now, I want to say two things. The first thing is, this reminds us of when, during the time of Nehemiah, Ezra read from the book of the law. And it was during a, a jubilant feast, yay, celebration. But when they read the law, the people began to weep the people began to repent. And Nehemiah had to remind them, don't weep. This is to be a festival. 
but the word of God has had done its powerful work and there was a revival. So we see this thread throughout the entire Old Testament and New Testament of the secret to revival. Now, somehow or other, in the reading of the Pentateuch, or even just Deuteronomy, Josiah becomes aware of the Lord's wrath for their sin. How does that happen? Well, first of all, let's just go back. You remember when Manasseh sinned, God said, that's it. And you remember, they gave him the prophecy that Judah is going to go. Judah is going to go in the hands of the enemy. So he would have known about it there. But, but is that something that was just made up? No. It was in the word of God. In fact, it's been in God's word since the book of Exodus. And so this is reiterated. This isn't something where God says, that's it. One strike, you're out. Strikes, strikes. How many strikes did they have throughout their entire history where they sinned? God brought a consequence. They repented. God forgave them. But always there was the warning. If you continue, if you don't follow me, if you worship idols, I will bring these curses upon you that are found in Deuteronomy 28. I will bring the curse of taking you and putting you in the hands of an enemy, taking you out of the promised land. God had said that to every generation. A couple of them, Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. You don't have to turn there. But in the section where he gives the Ten Commandments, he says, you shall not worship them or serve them, these false gods. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So he's saying, look, there's consequences. Deuteronomy chapter 4. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And he goes on to say, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. It's not like he gave them one warning and done. The, the prophets, the writing of scripture gave them warning after warning after warning. And Josiah reads this and he is beside himself. And he's even going to have Hilkiah inquire of the Lord. We'll pick that up next week, but inquire of the Lord. What can be done? Well, I, I won't I won't give you I won't spoil that for you, but this is where we're at. So I want to talk then about influences because we talked about the pattern of influences of the kings last week and, uh, you know, we really didn't come up with any 
any good pattern. You could have a good good, and the son would be evil evil. Or you could have the father evil either, evil evil, but the son be good good and on rare occasions. And so again, we concluded that one would be the hand of the Lord. The other is the individual's responsibility to seek the Lord like Josiah and to follow the Lord and even listen to good and godly influences if they are there. Well, most likely then, Josiah was not influenced for evil by his evil father, Amon, but was influenced by the good influence of Shaphan and most likely Hilkiah. And as we said before, we believe that Shaphan was godly. Remember we had said that his sons, wherever they're mentioned, they're doing the Lord's work. And uh, he has several sons mentioned in the book of Jeremiah. And one of them is sticking up for Jeremiah. And you don't really stick up for prophets sometimes in the Old Testament because do you want to be killed too? And yet he did. But I think we really see the godly influence when he read the word and when he read the word to the king. That's where we really see this influence. So if nothing else, that's our encouragement. Yes, influence does work. Now, it doesn't always work, but it does and it can work. And that's all we ought to do is influence, 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 and leave the results up to God. But how do we influence? Well, we influence by living a life according to the word, and we also influence with the word. I'd like to just read, first of all, a number of the things that the word of God says about the word of God and its powerful influence, and then I've got to read a few scriptures, right? I mean, if this is going to be a powerful application tonight, and it's the word that's influential, I've got to read it. But let me just read just the descriptions. And by the way, uh, if you want this list, it is on our website where our notes are. It's I couldn't fit it on the two pages that I handed out tonight, but it is on the website. The Word of God, the most powerful influence. It is the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6, 17. It is living and active, Hebrews 4, 12. It sanctifies with the truth. John 17, 17, and that's probably one of my favorite verses. If, if somebody's going to give somebody a nickel, every time I say that, you'd be pretty rich by now. It performs its work in us, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. It accomplishes God's purposes, Isaiah 55, 9 through 11. In Psalm 19, it restores the soul. And the idea could even mean the backslidden soul. How do you influence the word of God? It influences the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. You want to be happy? Know the word, live by the word. You want a revival? That's it. And when I say revival, don't get me wrong. What I believe a revival is what we would call 
biblical, normal Christian living. We're not doing anything out of the con, out of the ordinary, by you know, howling at the devil and and those kinds of things. We're not doing that, but we are following the word of God as the word of God states and as we're supposed to. When you do that, that's a revival. You, this is a revival, and that revival influences people. All right. It spiritually enlightens the eyes. It is to be desired more than gold. Say what? Yep. It warns the believer. The word of God is faithful in revealing our sins and our faults. And we need that. So we can confess it. So we can live the biblical, normal Christian life and start a revival. It keeps our way pure. Now I'm in Psalm 119. It keeps our way pure. It keeps us from sin. It revives us spiritually. It revives us from vanities. It revives us when afflicted. It revives us when under trials. It revives us with God's mercies. It revives us with the love of God, and it revives our love for the word of God. Now, just in the few moments that I have, let's take a look at that. All right, first of all, and I'm going to zip through a lot of these, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. We read it recently, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It was the Machaira, the smaller sword, in which, in a sense, it was a defensive weapon because by the time you're into hand-to-hand combat, the enemy has, a, has a encroached upon you. But this is what we use as the Word of God against temptation, against spiritual warfare, against following the Lord. It is... Living and active, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active because it, it was given to us by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works in and through his word. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts both ways and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Just when you thought we had it all down correctly, the word of God shows us when we have wrong thoughts, wrong intentions. It sanctifies with the truth. Jesus said when he prayed, Father, sanctify them with the truth. Now, if you'd ask people today, what is the truth? You'd get a myriad of answers. But let's look at Jesus' answer. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And and I'm telling you, that's what we have to drive home as we raise our children and as we raise this younger generation because they're going to have to do battle with their Machaira one of these days, the sword of the Spirit, and they've got to know the sword of the Spirit and they've got to be sanctified by the truth and the truth of the word of God. Today, there is such... A moving away from absolute truth. There's no absolute truth. The Bible is just another opinion. Oh, no, it's not. 
Oh, no, it's not. We've moved into an, an, an error of era of skepticism. And that unless science proves it, it's not true. I was just, I, you know, Dr. Galuza said that this week. And I, I happened to see a commercial <laughs> about dog food backed by science, scientifically tested. What scientist ate that food? Anyway, this is what we have. It performs its work in us. The word of God is living and active, and it performs its work in us. That's why we need to be in church. That's why we need to hear the word of God. That's why we need to be in our devotions. That's why we need to read the word of God. That's why we need to memorize the word of God. This is what Paul said, and I want to ask you a question. Do you think Paul was doubting? Do you think Paul was 99.9% convinced it was the word of God? Or 110%? He wrote to the Thessalonians, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. No wonder the finding of the law in Josiah's reign, caused a revival. Then there's Isaiah 55, 9 through 11. I will ask you to turn there. We all know this verse, but let's take a look at it. Isaiah chapter 55, beginning in verse 9. This is what we read about God's word. Verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, how high are the heavens than the earth? And do you notice what it says? It's plural. So we could be thinking of, okay, the atmosphere of the birds, but even that's pretty high. You know, probably don't want to jump off the cliff that the bird just flew off. Well, it could be outer space where the astronauts went. That's really high. You know, we see pictures of the earth from the astronauts, or it could even be what is described as where God has his abode in the heavens, even higher. It's limitless, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, limitless, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your ways, and that's what we need to learn, and that's what we need to teach this next generation in order for them to stand. All right. Let's uh, use an illustration from farmers. Verse 10, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and you know that, you know that ranchers and farmers, they like rain and snow, more rain than snow, but they like moisture because it helps with the ground. It helps with the crops. And it says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, the whole thing, the whole gamut. So, verse 11, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing 
what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Now, we're talking about influence here. And number one, that means the influence of the Lord. And so it's the word of God that influences and that must be a part of our apologetics, our, our, our speaking with others. We've got to know the word and know doctrine. But I dare say to those individuals who reject Christ, what did it do for them? Well, it's the evidence against them when they die and go into a Christless eternity under the punishment of the wrath of God. They heard the word. And if they ever say, God, this is your fault, they heard the word. God told them. Now they're acting like Manasseh. Amen, not listening to the Lord. And so this is what we see. And I, I wish we had enough time to go through all of these. These are, these are just fantastic. And, and I think we should encourage ourselves with this from time to time in the word of God. I love when the topic of the word of God is the word of God. I, I just get so excited about that. And that's why I guess in a way I'm a purist. I'm a purist that what do I think is a power that sanctifies a church, the power that motivates a church? Well, I'm sure there's a lot of ministries that help. I'm not saying that at all. That, you know, they help, but it's the word of God. Preach it, preach it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we see in the reign of Josiah, a young man whose heart was open to you, tender, wanting to seek you and follow you, and then the word of God was added. May that be the same Lord as we teach this next generation. And may we teach them not just with our words, but also with our examples and our actions. The word of God. It is so many things, but it is ultimately the word of God. Father, may we be saturated with it. May we be filled with it. May, may we be following with it and may we be influencing with it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.